welcome to Good Wise and Wonderful Sessions. I am Jessica Francavilia. I'm the founder and curator of Good Wise and Wonderful. And today we are talking to Samantha Stolenwork Runkle. She is a multifaceted, extremely intelligent woman. Um, she's lived a, a lot of lifetimes in one, and you'll hear a lot of her story coming up in the next hour, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. If you ask me what's good, wise, and wonderful about her, I will tell you just about everything, really. She is first and foremost a recording artist and songwriter from Southern California. She now lives in Nuremberg, Germany. She has landed on bills with the likes of Dave Matthews and Ziggy Marley and on stage with Bonnaroo and Austin City Limits. She has traveled to over 80 countries, either as a touring musician or with her husband, Michael, who uh, has is a travel photographer and has been to all 193 UN nations and photographed every UNESCO World Heritage Site. She is, on top of that, a mother to uh, Sia, who the Michael, Samantha, and Sia also traveled the world together when Sia turned eight months old, which you'll hear all about coming up. She is philanthropically involved with a lot of organizations like Surfrider, Patagonia, um, internationally with Every Mother Counts and Musicians Without Borders, which brings um, music into conflict zones to help heal the effects of war. I personally met her in Nicaragua about 11 years ago uh, on a volunteer trip for the organization called Serve, led by Monique Evans, the uh, service spelled S-Y-R-V. Uh, we both traveling solo met each other in a little village called Hicaleo on the peninsula of Punta Caliente. Uh, and we went there to build a community center for the women in the town and brought water filters for the families in the community. And we ended up having some serious laughs and creating a lifelong friendship out of it. I am truly excited to share her journey with you today and honored that she chose to talk to us because there's so many incredible lessons to be learned from what she has to say, um, from her travels, from her life experiences, from her motherhood. So um, Samantha, hello, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited that we are chatting today. Hello, Jessica. How are you doing today? All the way from Germany? Doing fantastic. There's a couple of feet of snow on the ground and just kind of going through the winter. <laughs> Looking well, at least spring. we're not in the in the polar Arctic freeze of Chicago right now, which is like minus forty degrees. I read that. It's yeah. crazy. Just not bunker, so. Hunker bunker down. I know. As I stare out my window in Southern California, <laughs> like it, you know. Um, well, let's get started. I want to start with you taking us on the journey. Um, going from an artist from California to meeting your husband on the expedition ship in Antarctica, because it's one of my favorite stories. Um, it's truly remarkable and it changed the course of your life in huge ways. So talk me through it. It did. It did change my life completely. Um, yeah, I was, we both found ourselves on a Russian icebreaker down on the Antarctic shelf about seven years ago. Um, I was with, I just, I swear, you know, latitude, it just doesn't sound real. <laughs> latitude negative, you know, 67.5000. I don't know. No, it was really in the middle of, of nowhere. And um, I was with a group of Americans. I had gone down with an uh, American group. And then Michael was there on around the world trip. He had taken a year sabbatical. He is a German travel photographer. So he had taken a full year to go and travel around the world um, and, and shoot, shoot photos. And so Antarctica was one of his stops. And we kind of conjured ourselves on um, the ship for two weeks, you know, down 
down south of the Drake Passage onto the Antarctic Peninsula, which is absolutely one of the most spectacular places in the world. And if, I encourage everyone to try and make the time to experience Antarctica once in their lifetime. It really is, it is really otherworldly and is such a fragile, precious place on this planet. Um, and if you can get down there and do it. Which- so how did you end up on this, this, this expedition ship? Like that, I don't, that's not a typical vacation yeah. that I think most people would choose. How'd you end up there? I had some friends in Los Angeles and I had done, well, you and I first met, you know, we met in Nicaragua, um, about a couple months before I ended up going on this trip, which was actually the door opener to, my desire to make kind of a conscious life change where I had been in the music industry for 10 to 12 years and doing the hustle, you know, just tunnel visioning on touring and making records and writing. And, you know, that when that's your life, that's completely your life, especially as, as a freelancer, you know, you're an independent an independent contractor. So you have to make your own way. Um, there wasn't really any time for me to think outside of that, but after a, a good decade of it, I, I decided to give myself permission and, you know, go down to Nicaragua with you and work on work on the project we worked on, which was so enlightening and, and expanding. It really was. It was incredible. And, you know, just as before, I had always been a part of different projects um, and organizations, but only through my music and just, you know, performing, performing for for fundraisers and doing sort of on the ground, local kind of hands-on, hands-on projects, but really nothing um, internationally. And just simply to learn about how, you know, for, in our case, like clean water is brought to small villages with, with zero infrastructure. Um, so it really just took me out of my kind of the way that I was living and put me into this, into this place of wanting to learn and, and be a little bit more of a, a contribution to the planet and the people. So um, after we had gone down to Nicaragua, and then I had, I was able to go on a trip to Cuba uh, with a group, which was also an educational trip. And that's where I met a friend who was organizing this trip down to Antarctica. And he said, Sam, we have one more, we have one more um, opening spot, someone fell out, can you make it? I'm like, Oh, God, that's just that's a big leap from going, from going, not really having traveled the world, you know, I toured, with my music through Europe and I'd, I'd been to, you know, most parts of Western Europe and, you know, Mexico and our local, you know, places local to North, to United States, but really nothing like putting on a backpack and traveling, you know, this way. Um, so I said, yes, just because it was an opportunity and it seemed like something I could do. And it kind of opened the door to a complete life change. Yeah, it's amazing how that happens, isn't it? Like you, you know, for me that that Nicaragua trip was the same thing. It was like a door opening, Mm -hmm. an eye opening, giving myself permission and really enjoying traveling like that. Mm -hmm. Like you you start to see the world in a in a different through a different lens. So um I love that you said yes to the next experiences like to Cuba and to this this Antarctica experience. Right. And it was really, you know, because that was actually the blessing of being an artist is that I I could make my own time and I was able to like leap put my life on hold and be able to make time to do that. Um which I look back on and be very grateful for. So yeah, so we, I, I didn't really know how to get down there. But basically, my friend said, you know, you have to just get to Buenos Aires. And then we'll meet down, we'll fly down to Ushuaia together. Ushuaia is the most southerly city on the planet. It's a part of Argentina in Tierra del Fuego. And it's the, the port by which the, the ships disembark to go down to the 
Antarctic Peninsula. So we went on a on a Russian icebreaker, and it's it was with an incredible company that actually just came up in the in the news yesterday or a couple of days ago. It's one of the top ten ethical travel companies in the world. It's called G Adventures, and they're such a cool group of people. I ended up actually working on the same ship nine months later, but in the Arctic, far north. Um, driving Zodiacs and then doing the music curation. And so it was, wow. I had a chance to, and of course I've remained lifelong friends with many of the crew members, the captains, the expedition leaders and the scientists and naturalists, you know, cause you're, you're really learning when you're down there. They're giving lots of lectures and that, so it's an incredible company if anyone decides to go down there. It's amazing. Yeah. So, so you're on this, you're on this ship for two weeks with the same group of people, right? You don't get off the ship, but is that yeah, we're like, we're, we're doing landings, which is, you know, you're getting in the Zodiac and you're spending days out on the ice, but there's zero, you know, there's zero disembarking. There's no, just, you're, you're essentially, you know, sleeping, eating on the ship and there's, there's just, um, short, short stints on the ice and, you know, going and seeing a couple different, um, like science, um, what do you call it? Labs down there that are conducting research. But besides wow. that, you're really on the you're really on the ship, and so of course, with you're with two hundred of your closest friends, by <laughs> you can't go anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> and you get to sun, know each other real well. The sun doesn't set. Everybody is getting seasick. You know, the Drake Passage. You have to go over the Drake Passage, which is like forty five foot swells and oh, it's God. Some of the hardest currents in the world. So everyone's seasick for a couple of days on either end, and you really get to know people when you get seasick. Um, yeah, you're pretty vulnerable, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, like I ran into Michael on the ship. We became friends. You know, I he had a very funny sense of humor. Um, and I think there's like a like a, a cliche about German directness, which you could kind of attribute to him. But it was for me coming from California and, you know, the music entertainment world. That was so refreshing. Like it was so not superficial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, cool. Okay. So, so we had become friends. And we had spent, you know, on and off together, you know, going on Zodiac trips, you know, you're going over and you're, you're kind of like looking at sea ice and you're looking at the difference between Adeli and Jintu penguins and just really kind of absorbing in this beautiful space in, on, in the world. So, and I, I was thinking about it, like, it's almost because you're so far away from everything down there, you're hundreds of miles from civilization um, and any sort of like pressure from the daily constraints of your own life, like that you almost, it's almost an opening for connection in a way. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact you can't get off the ship. So, I mean, if I had met Michael on, you know, in some city traveling, we would have met and, you know, maybe struck up a conversation and then moved on. But right. we kind of were like forced to, to hang out. <laughs> with well, and it's interesting too, because shared experiences, like I find when, when you're sharing a new experience and I mean, you guys, this is such a unique experience as well. It's just such a good springboard for, for true connection. Like you were saying, it's not a superficial connection. It's like a true heart to heart connection. Um, and those are the best experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, it really, it's like, you're taking yourself out of all the things you think you're supposed to be doing and you're just like, anything is really possible and it really is possible. And so we, um, we spent the next couple of weeks, you know, with all of our friends, making friends here and there. And I mean, also we've made lifelong friends on this ship that, you know, we still keep in touch with. But um, the funny part, I think that you like this part of the story is that um, <laughs> word had spread that I was a musician, but I had just, I'd gone down there 
not telling anybody that I had played music because I knew what was going to come up. And I didn't want... <laughs> I didn't, right. Everyone's going to make you play all day long. I wanted to learn about climate change and I wanted to get up at five in the morning and just, you know, do my thing. I had no idea to... I had no desire to play play my tunes. But um, because, because we were headed back towards the end of the trip and everyone was about to get back into this seasickness and they knew it was going to be basically hell for 48 hours, they said... Oh Sam, come on, can you play some songs? I'm like, okay, fine. You know, it's the end of the trip. We've all been together for like 12, 14 days solid. Let's I'll do something. And there was another musician on the tr- on the ship who had a guitar. So um, I was able to take the guitar one night and I said I asked, I said, pulled Michael. I'm like, oh, I'm playing. You want to come up and, and see the show? <laughs> totally invited him. Didn't think he would come. Yeah. <laughs> <was> so funny. <laughs> and so then I I did my little thing and everyone had fun. And at the afterwards I went over to him and he was with another one of our friends who was also from Germany. And I said, yeah, so, you know, what kind of music do you listen to? Just trying to like make some small talk and thinking he would be like, yeah, I listen to Bonnie Iver or, you know, just trying to get on my way. <laughs> and he looks and he says, I listen to political podcasts and audiobooks. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Period. Like, wow. Like not even the door open for some t- no, genre of music. Not even. And of course he listens to music, but he meant in his way of incredible transparency, which I, you know, basically was my, one of the main reasons I married him, um, <laughs> is that he was driving, you know, he had been in Australia before this trip because he was on this round the world trip. And so he was like driving by himself across the continent of Australia. So he was listening to a lot of audiobooks. So that was just what he was doing at that moment in time. That was his jam. Yeah, exactly. By the way, it makes me laugh because, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, I play music and they pick up a guitar and you're like, oh, you're good. You know, that's great. It's amazing. How, what a great, you know, what a great hobby. And I remember when you were like, oh, I play music in Nicaragua and you started playing and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> like, so I I, in my mind, I'm picturing all these people on this ship. <laughs> no, like, what the, are you kidding? They lost their minds. Oh, I mean, I'm sure. They, they lost them. I mean, everyone was like, I will not go into it, but some friends, they, you know, had painted like my name on their shirt. I mean, this is literally because you're cooped up with cabin fever. And I mean, who knows how many beers they had to drink, but they're sliding around on the, on the ship and the sun, you know, the sun doesn't set in the summer in Antarctic shells. So um, yeah, you're, they were up late. <laughs> so you literally, you have a song called Icicles, right? So it's yeah. literally icicles on your feet and the I sun think. isn't setting and yeah. yeah. Exactly. It was a premonition. <laughs> yeah. So then we, we ended up connecting and he said, listen, I'm driving up to after this before it was Christmas time. I'm driving up to Buenos Aires. Um, I have a car rented and you know, you want to come along. We were, of course, friends at this point. And I said, well, I have to leave from Buenos Aires too. And and so we agreed that we would, you know, take this trip across for a couple of weeks. And he had, he had said, asked me, he said, you should come meet me in the Philippines. You know, this would be so cool because he had heard, you know, I told him I was thinking about doing some traveling myself the following year. Um, and of course, as a musician, I had no idea what this like travel nomenclature was. Like, was this a, a platonic thing or... You know, was this something that he was, it was interested in me, but I came to realize, I you know he's traveled with many, many females, um, platonically throughout his life. And this is just simply, that's a, that's a person that you want to experience something with, regardless if you're friends or if you're romantic. Right. It was incredible. So we really just, we drove through, um, went to Torres del Paine and, and he was shooting a lot of UNESCO world heritage sites. And, um, over the course of this couple of weeks together alone, 
I, re- I found out that he was one of the most traveled people in the world. He had been to, at that point to like 150 countries. He speaks five lo- fl- languages fluently. He's been traveling for the last 25 years and he essentially knows every single piece of information about every village on the planet. And so wow. he would be driving through like, you know, the middle of central Patagonia and he would say like, this Welsh settlement from 1865 was the in Americas after New York and Pennsylvania because of the dissolution of the Industrial Revolution. You know, just really just knew everything. So for a person who had been um, hadn't really seen the world and had wanted to expand her mind, um, this was an amazing person to be to be traveling with. It's like was going to school. Yeah, what a gift. Totally. You know, because so often you travel, and I mean, nowadays it's like for me when I'm curious, I'm like I Google it. But to I think to know a place is to know its history. So yeah, um, what a gift to travel with, with a mind like that. I mean, tell me about it. And so, and and not to mention, we really got along so well. So we decided to um, to meet up again after I went home, and I um, I rented out my apartment, and I sold my guitars, and or I put my guitars in storage. I sold my car. And then I bought a, a one-way ticket back to Sao Paulo. And we hooked up with another friend from, from Germany and traveled together. And then Michael and I continued for another eight months traveling through about 25 countries. I, this to me, I'm so, I'm, you obviously know I'm, a, I'm absolutely obsessed with this story. But to be able to say yes to these type of things in life, had you done that before? Or was this like a new muscle for you that you were building of like, yes, I'm going to do it, life change? Were you, had you always been brave in that way or was this kind of a new thing for you? I think that thinking back on it, I, I, I probably is in my, somewhere inside of me because I had, you know, I had taken this daring leap in my early twenties to, instead of going the way of a, of a regular life and career, which I probably should have done in a lot of ways. Um, after graduating from Berkeley, I got a record deal and just went for the music career, which was its own form of an adventure in a way. And it was hard, you know, it was, there was a lot yeah, of ups and downs, to a choose lot of that. rejection, a lot of like, a lot of things you had to learn on the fly. There was no going to school for that. Um, but I did say, I did say yes to that and do that. So I think there was a, a sense of like, there's a sense of taking a t- chance and taking a risk. But I also knew in my heart, I knew there was something between Michael and I, there was something I could really trust. And I, I had no fear. I had no fear being around him. I knew everything was going to be fine somehow. It was just, it was inside of me. Yeah. That little, it's all, it's when you give your, it's like you give yourself permission to be brave in one way. It cascades in a little bit. Yeah. And my part of it is DNA too. But um, I think the trust factor is so huge, especially, you know, whether in friendship or romantically. Oh yeah. Uh, I think it's just, it's integral. Oh yeah. It's completely integral. I mean, it, I moved over to Germany and, you know, we live, we've been living together happily for the last seven years because of trust. I mean, that's such a, yeah, that's such a basis and a foundation for a relationship. So you guys traveled, how many countries did you say you traveled to 18 over those eight months or something? I think it was like 25. And it's, I mean, of course, I don't know any, I just followed him. And so that sounds crazy to most people, but no. in reality, he was on a, He was on a trip. You know, he's a travel photographer and he's capturing the world. He has the largest UNESCO World Her- the largest catalog of UNESCO World Heritage sites um, under in photos in the world. And actually, now since he's been to every country, all nine, 193 UN countries, we think he's the only person who has professionally photographed all of them. Because I, I oh don't my know, goodness, I don't know what other professional photographers has done what he's done really. So. He's really, I mean, he's been doing this and this has been his life's work. So to travel with him was, you didn't really feel like you were zipping through these places. I mean, we were 
renting cars, you know, traveling independently, sharing the costs. And like I told you before, I was spending less money somehow than my daily, my daily expenses in Los Angeles. It was incredible that just because he was so seasoned and he knew how to really, really do it on a budget. Um, and so we were able to go see all sorts of, all sorts of countries in kind of a, an economical way. Which is, a, it, I think that's such a point of excuse for so many people when they're traveling, myself included in a lot of ways is like, sure. you know, I can't afford it. But the reality is you can, you just have to be really smart about how you do it. Um, yeah, totally. And today there's tons of resources that you can figure it out on your own. It's like such an easier place way these days to, yeah. to get from place to place. So you, and you guys on this trip, this 25 countries, you went to places like Yemen. Is that, is this the same time period where you went to Yemen right before the coup d'etat and all those upheavals? We Yemen in 2014. So this, the, our round the world trip was in 2012, 2012. Oh, okay. And most of the countries we had gone to were based in Asia, Micronesia. We went to New Zealand for about three and a half weeks, um, the Philippines, in Indonesia. And um, then we kind of crisscrossed back through the – he was really wanting to see all of these kind of obscure islands that I had never heard of in, um, in Micronesia, which were incredible, like Yap. Um, and so we had kind of bounced around the world that way. And then <clears> – <throat> At the end of the trip, I like I said, I worked on the the ship in the Arctic, and then I came to Germany in that fall. But but the the trips that you're mentioning, the Yemen and our travel through the Middle East, happened um, in around 2013 2014. Right, right. You said right before the the coup d'état with the Houthi rebels, and you know the subsequent humanitarian crisis going on there right now. So when and when you're traveling around the Middle East, because it's such a it's such an interesting polarizing topic politically for us in the United States, as you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what so t- let's can we talk about that for a second where did you go and how did it feel for you did you feel um and safe is the wrong word because i think you know safety is 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 a is a factor of the fear that we create in our minds in so many ways but where did you travel and how did it feel to be there well as you said the safety factor is something especially as americans and growing up with this this especially our generation right growing yeah, up yeah exactly 911 um, we are taught to fear, especially, especially places, especially the Middle East and places that had bred terrorism, which it's understandable. But at the same time, we know enough that that is such a small faction of, of society. And um, the majority of people are dying to have people come and appreciate their country. I mean, that's what ha- every single country. We, we went to Kurdistan um, and got engaged actually in Kurdistan. And, you know, we fought alongside the Kurdish against Saddam Hussein. Um, and so they love Americans there. There's absolutely nothing to fear. We were, you know, I, we couldn't pay for a meal. Anytime we go to a restaurant, someone would cover our bill for us. Um, there's no, there's no Western tourist down there. Um, there's some, I saw some NGO, Western NGO workers, but I didn't see anybody actually traveling through. Um, and that of course had its own, has, has its own problems with, you know, there was a lot of the, the Yazidi, um, kind of ethno genocide that has happened, um, since then that happened right after we were there. And, um, we also were in Yemen, we were down in Oman and, Beautiful, beautiful, some of the most beautiful places on the planet. And if you ask Michael what his, his, in his idea, what the most, one of the most beautiful countries is, it's Yemen. Um, Of course, you have to really kind of respect where you are. 
you know, you can't go and expect them, expect that culture to bend to you. I was wearing the appropriate clothing. Um, and of course you, you tread, you tread respectively, just like you would want someone to be respectful when you're in there in your house. I, um, so I think for me, it's like, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I feel like as Americans and, and not to come down on, on American Americans yeah. at all, but we're totally. so disconnected from our own culture in a lot of ways. Like I find when I travel, you know, we were just talking about Fiji. When you go to Fiji, they have a culture that, that you feel right away, starting with, yeah. you know, when they say bula to you, which means hello, or it's, you yeah. know, um, everything, there's a thread of culture that goes through it. And I, and I don't know if, you know, I'm always curious about people that have traveled the world like yourselves and like Michael, what has our culture been democratized away entirely? Like what, what defines America? Like what defines our culture? Do you think I don't, it's a weird, it's a weird question, but you know, there's, we have so many different cultures here that we're exposed to that. What's our one thread together. And I know that's like a total stoner question. I was thinking about that the other day. I'm like, what's our thing, you know? Um, yeah. But, it's, it's hard, right? Because we are such a melting pot in the United States. And I mean, I've learned a lot from, I've been living in Germany the last seven years. So I've been looking at America from kind of this outside, you know, outside of the bubble in a way um, and analyzing it. And I love America. I love my home. I mean, you asked Michael about what, you know, one of the best things about the States, which is one of the best in the whole planet is you know, the, the availability of national parks and our landscape and our beautiful preservation and conservation efforts, um, which you don't see a lot of places. Right. There's some really beautiful aspects to America. Um, I just think, I yeah, think so you could even, we can travel at home and get that too. It's not like somebody listening that, you know, doesn't have the resources oh, yeah. maybe to travel across the world that we have the gems. We have a lot of gems oh in the gosh. world right on our own territory. I mean, the Western United States is some of the yeah, most it's gorgeous. I mean, hello, it's the most beautiful, some of the most beautiful places I've seen in my life. And that's where we come from. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, okay, here's my, here's one of my favorite pivot points that I've, I've heard in, in human stories. Uh, and it's when you and Michael had your daughter, Sia, mm-hmm. and you guys decided to travel the world with her. So, um, you guys had done the around the world trip in 2012. You did the Middle Eastern trip and and that whole side of the world in 2013, 2014. When did you guys, when was Sia born um, in the middle of all of this? She was born in 2015. And we, in Germany, I'm like, this is one thing that I really can kind of come down on the States for is that there's just a lack of support for, for women and mothers in the United States. Yeah. So basically in Germany, they, um, they fully support paternity leave here, paternity leave for both parents. Um, so you can, so we were able to take what is called Elternzeit, which translates to parent time. And we were able to take a full 13 or 14 months off and um, travel which was so unbelievable to me. It's just the way it should be. I know. Or if you don't want to travel and just stay home, just have that time or you don't have to go back to work after a couple of weeks, you know? Yeah. So we were, um, we were able to take and do a round the world trip. And that's when we decided, of course we waited until she was eight months until she was, you know, we wanted to make sure she was vaccinated and it would be an okay time, um, to go with her, um, that she wasn't so young. But we, we still came. We came to the United States when she was two months. And so I did a little bit of travel with her in that very pre, pre-time. But our round-the-world trip started when she was officially eight months. 
Wow. And yeah. how many countries did you guys go to before, you know, around when you got, did the trip? We did, um, I think it was 13, 12 or 13 countries, but she, I mean, she was on six continents really outside of Antarctica. She, we went everywhere because we started from California and we went down to, um, we went to Panama and to Colombia. Then we, we went and we followed the sun, you know, cause we left in the springtime. So we kind of went reverse and we went to Japan, um, drove through Hokkaido and Okinawa. And then we spent some time going through the South Pacific and French Polynesia. Beautiful. Just seeing some of these islands. It's really spending a lot of time down there, which for me was great because, um, it's so multifaceted and so multicultural, all of these different islands that you kind of write off because it's like a tropical paradise, but there's like so much more to all of these places. Um, and I really, and it's very easy to travel if you if you decide to travel with your baby because the infrastructures and, you know, just, um, it's, it's easy to get from, from Island to Island. And then we continued on and we went to Australia and then we flew over to uh, Indonesia. We were in Bali for about a month. And we ended going to South Africa. We rented a camper van. And it was winter in South Africa. And then we drove for about a month through South Africa and Namibia. And then we flew home. Wow. Yeah. She's seen more of the world in her you know, first two years than most people do in a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> she won't remember any of it. But we have yeah, photos. I- do you think though, I feel like children are such sponges that even just yeah. visually absorbing all of that, I mean, I, yeah. I'm, yeah, that's just what a unique experience. Well, she must be absorbing like the prefrontal cortex, right? There must be some sort of, you know, yeah. smells and sights and all of that. And of course, like the relationship with, with babies around the world, it's, it's people can relate through babies because that's our Absolutely. You know, universal common denominator. And so what an amazing way to talk to people and meet people outside of just traveling, you know, by yourself with a couple of cameras, um, you have a baby that's your kind of common denominator. Because even if you're not a parent, I mean, you can be an aunt or, you know, babies in your life. And many cultures in the world, it's, they, it's babies are just part of community. They're not something that you should be, you know, separated from or overly fragile with. Yeah, so be on an airplane and, and men, women and men too, would just come up and, you know, grab her and, play around with her either against her will or with her will (laughs) (laughs) most of the time with protests, but oh well. And, you know, they play with her for 15 or 20 minutes and then bring her back. And that was just the way it went. And so there's a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of acquaintances of mine are, are, are a little hesitant to travel with their younger children, um, mm-hmm. either, you know, for this, for the struggle of, of it, I guess, mm-hmm. or fear of it. So mm-hmm. what do you, what do you, what's your advice to those people? You know, what do you tell those parents or what, you know, what do you, from what you've learned of traveling with a child, what do you, what would you share with them about that? I would say it's, it's much easier than you think. Um, they, first of all, there's so many more online resources today that you can access if, if you're planning and you're wanting to go somewhere, but you don't know how there's, you know, you can access so much, so much online with either families who have done it before and kind of map out, you know, your, your own way of doing it. And there's also much more infrastructure in many of these places. And we were really off the grid, you know, we were in places yeah. where there's never been a white baby um, in Western white baby in some of these places we were. Um, and even in those situations, you could always find a diaper. You could always find a little squeezy pack of fruit. 
Um, so we really were never left stranded. And of course, you have to be able to know where you're going and do some planning. And you have to take right. into account the climate, you know, altitude, um, some sort of infrastructure. Also, if there's, you know, there's sicknesses or, you know, malaria and bugs, you, you don't want to really be bringing your baby in, into like a, a malaria place. But um, if you do your research, then you can see that most everything is entirely possible. Is, was there one place where you felt like the connection between the culture and your family and Sia in particular was strong, strongest or most unique? Yeah, I had two. I definitely had two experiences and they were both with, with indigenous matriarchal societies, um, which what, what a way to learn and also be humbled by your own life. Um, one of them was when our, when we first got down to Panama, um, there is, um, it's an indigenous peoples called um, the Kuna Indians, and they are. It's part of the Kunayala region and in the San Blas Islands. And these women were so incredible. They're they're fiercely independent, and um, you can read about them because the, right now they're leading the charge, the global charge for indigenous autonomy. So they have complete control of their lands and of tourism and of the ecosystem and the business on the, the islands and. I know that, that, you know, we didn't speak the same language. They spoke Kuna and we spoke English, but um, they took Sia and, you know, they were just shaking a rattle and singing a lullaby and, you know, taking her and embracing her. And I came to found, I found out that they're world famous for their lullabies and their rattle shaking. I mean, who would have known that this right. music ran, ran so deep. I mean, if we hadn't brought Sia down there, we wouldn't have had this kind of unique experience and this bonding, especially between music, because I'm a musician. Um, so that was extremely powerful. But I would, I would definitely encourage listeners to look up the Kuna Indians um, and see what they're doing as far as um, um, indigenous rights, because it's really important right now. Um, and the second, the second one was when we were in northern Namibia, and this was with the Himba, the Himba women, which is um, also a matriarchal and polygamous society. Who um, they're kind of a semi-pastoral, and they're living trad still traditionally off the land, and they're abs also absolutely stunning, beautiful, friendly women. Um, and we had traveled there because Michael was doing a shoot, and we brought Sia to one of the villages, and they. Um, of course, took Sia and we were playing around and we ended up breastfeeding together, which was also such a first time thing for them probably to have seen um, a woman from the West sitting in a circle with them and, and breastfeeding a little baby. And, you know, they asked me how old I was and I said I was 37 and they started laughing because I was, you know, I'm a grandmother in, 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 in oh, God. or maybe great, <laughs> maybe great grandmother. But what an amazing experience, especially as a, as a woman on the planet, to connect um, cross when crossing cultures. Absolutely, and, and, yeah. I was going to ask you too, just on that note, like during this time, what what did you learn about yourself as a woman? You know, what a, these are powerful experiences. You know, you're a new mother, you're traveling the world, you're seeing all these different um, ways other people are. You know embracing mm -hmm. their womanhood or being mothers. What did you learn about yourself as a woman in the, during that time? Well, I, I really, I mean, I'm kind of a, an attachment parent as it is. And we, you know, we do, we, I carry Sia in a, in a carrier and I was breastfeeding her very much almost exclusively when we were traveling, which is another 
if you are going to travel with your kids, it's an incredible travel hack if you can breastfeed because you don't have to always depend on your, you know, different foods and formulas. It's an amazing and easy way to nourish your baby, especially when, when you're going through some tough situations. But a lot of this kind of instinctive connection that I had with Sia, um, sleeping together and things that are very taboo in that I've been reading and, and learning more about, especially in the States, um, are really not practiced around the world. And I find it to be like, we're so disconnected um, in the West with, from our like natural, kind of our natural biorhythms and our, with the natural world. And I mean, even me, I live a continent away from my own mother and you have to kind of learn to be a mom on the fly. And so yeah. you're, you're having to look online or be on Facebook groups or depend on people in your local communities. But you know, traditionally, many of these families, it's called alloparenting, where many of these communities are, you know, looking to their mothers and grandmothers that are still right in that village. And, you know, that Hillary Clinton phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, it really, it really applies out in the world. So it gave me a lot of things to think about, about how I could better live, live more like raising my own, my own girl, like a village in, in a, you know, Western European metropolitan city. Yeah, that reminds me. Um, some I, there's a quote I read the other day. It says it kind of reminds me of what you're talking about with the lineage and maternal lineage. Um, and it said your grandmother's prayers are still protecting you. Yeah, and I thought that was really cool Powerful. because I think in my own observation of our society versus my limited exposure around the world is that family structure that mater- that matriarchal structure is so important and you this is interesting it's one of i on your blog which is again samanthamusic.com um you wrote i write about what it's like traveling as a family with an extreme traveler and photographer whether on assignment or to shoot a new territory we always travel independently and we move quickly i'm more interested in the paradoxes and the poetry how countries stigmatized by the media and war must ag- be acknowledged more so than ever. What a matriarchal society in South Africa can teach us about our own maternal wisdom. The beauty and the quirks of being, oh shit, I can't even say this word. Ein Austerlanden. Yes. Or foreigner in Germany. And my personal favorite, how traveling with a baby can be the mightiest of door openers. I get chills when I read that because what a what a gift to be able to, to say something like that um, mm. and to have exposure to all these things. And when the, one of the things I think about when I think about your family structure is like, you know, what do you guys talk about? Like, what's a, what's a, an average dinner conversation for you guys? Because I feel like in my mind, I see you all sitting down talking about, you know, geopolitics and these fascinating, impactful things. Um, <laughs> And I always say most couples can't even find a sport to do together or agree on a vacation destination. <laughs> like here you guys are. What yeah. what is your what's your dinner conversations like? <laughs> well, besides like what time Sia needs to go to bed, which is yeah. way, way too late. If any Germans are listening to this right now, they would be shaking their head in like disapproval that she goes to bed so late. But oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean we definitely <laughs> besides the typical things of of, you know, living together. Um, we do. I mean, it's, it's just, it's interesting to me. I mean, it's what Michael and I really connected on. I mean, it was really this body of, of learning, of learning about the world. And I mean, I have this wealth of this information, wealth of information in my husband who 
um, you know, he's he has seen the world in a different way and has is able to put it together in the sense of um, you know current events and what's happening politically and in the global sphere. So yeah, we we have a lot of conversations about what's happening on the planet as as it happens. I think really those empowering. are such critical conversations too, and yeah. and you know, re- reading your blog and and hearing your story has made has opened up my mind to those types of things even more. And, you know, I, I consider myself to be um, somewhat, somewhat uh, knowledgeable about world events, but to sit down and be able to have a conversation with someone, as you said, you know, like yourselves and like Michael, um, what, what powerful content to be able to discuss. So so with the two of you and all these experiences, all the travel, um, all of, you know, seeing all the world in all its glory, what, what is this distilled down to in your own life? Like what, is there a a piece of wisdom that you would share that's distilled down to somebody or to the world uh, that you've really taken away from it? Well, the only thing I can say as far as in my personal, personal life, and this would just be the personal journey of what, what I've lived is that I'm, I found myself during this phase of my life to be become much more of a conduit than a creator, right? I mean, the first 15 years of my development as a human, since I was 15 years old, I was, you know, I picked a guitar up and was playing in coffee shops like three days later. And I had just been in this kind of place of self-expression and wanting to share and, you know, not as much being the listener in life, being more the creator and just kind of going on, on that path. Um, but as I've met Michael and have been extremely humbled and have learned so much um, through our traveling and being in a relationship, um, in a like a loving and supportive relationship, and you know subsequently having a child together, um, I've really become more of um, a support system for my own family and being an observer and supporting kind of the dreams of them, which has also been equally as empowering. And in a way, I have gained more from stepping back and quieting myself and learning than constantly being the the source of the output like I was before. Oh my God. I love that. You're yeah. more of a conduit than a creator. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's incredible. What a, what a, an incredible way to say that. Thanks. Yeah. I really, I mean, it's been, it's been such a wonderful place to, to, to grow into in life. I mean, that's completely a personal thing, but I think we can all relate on some levels. For sure. Mm. Um, so I have a few more questions. I'm always full of questions, as you know. I love it. (laughs) But for, you know, we were talking earlier about about apathy, um, specifically in our country, um, given political climates. uh, What would you offer to everybody listening about how to understand what's unfolding in the rest of the world to help bridge an empathetic gap? Well, we know that obviously travel breeds tolerance, right? And people can really only care about what they what they know about and what they see. And for instance, you know, us going down to Yemen and seeing with our own eyes how lovely and beautiful and rich the people are in so many ways. And the fact that not everyone in Yemen is wanting to come and, and bomb bomb Americans. It's it it opens your mind and changes it cha- completely changes the dialogue within yourself and the, the people who you come across and when you express, when you express these stories. Um, 
And I was thinking about it, like the concept of borders right now for us is totally changing in our lifetime right now. And it's not only happening in the United States, it's happening here in Germany as well. It's happening. Look, we have Brexit going on and it's happening all across Western Europe with immigration. Um, you know, I, we're, I live in Southern Germany. And so we were here when Syria was born, when the refugee crisis from Syria was happening and we've taken in 1.2 million refugees. So we're, we're having to shift our mindset from like an us versus them and, and recognize that we're completely in relationship with one another, whether or not you like it, it's happening. And like change is incredibly divine and constant. And I remember I was reading this, this quote by actually by the young Barbara Bush, Barbara, young, young Barbara Bush. And she said something about like reaching, we have to reach beyond our borders um, and also our comfort zones to confront our challenges today. It's paraphrasing, but like basically when you're experiencing the joy that, um, that you can recognize when you can see yourself in someone else. Yes, um, exactly. That that is really like true freedom. I always say it's impossible to feel disconnected from somebody when you know their story. Absolutely. And that's what travel does is, is it helps you, you, just like you said, breed tolerance because you can see with your own subjective mind someone else's story. You know, what's interesting though is in America, we have this great passport divide, right? Like mm. um, I found this to be really interesting. Um, New Jersey has the highest percentage of passport holders, like 68%. Wow. Then Delaware, Alaska, Massachusetts, New York, and California is at 60%. Oh, wow. um, but you get into some states, you know, the Mississippis of the world, which is less than 20% have passports. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's largely state of economies, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. most passport holders are likely, you know, it's, it's, a, it's economical. But um, to get the passport, is the door opener to get the experience. So like for me, when I got my first passport, that was such a monumental moment for me because I grew up on welfare. I never thought I'd travel yeah. the world. Oh um, so just to, just to encourage people to just get the passport because then that gives you the opportunity to be able to do it if it presents itself. It's like a little manifestation beginning, you know? Absolutely. Exactly as you said. And of course, like, like you just said, I mean, it is complete, it is so tied to economics and opportunities. Yes, exactly. But, but even in the States, I mean, we have so much more opportunity to travel and see than 95% of the rest of the planet. And so if we can start that change and be able to kind of be the tolerant ones and be able to spread that wealth of information, then we should. Exactly. And even, you know, we're such a diverse country in the United States. Right. We have, we're so blessed. We have exposures to so many different cultures. We just have to drive down it. the block or go to a different state, you know, so, or go see the national parks if you want to see the beauty. So it's here and it's possible. Um, and mm -hmm. to your point, it doesn't necessarily require a passport. Right. Right. Exactly. So I always ask um, the same three questions um, of every, every person I'm, I'm blessed enough to chat with. Mm-hmm. After all that you've seen in the world, what do you feel is truly good about the world and the people in it? Well, I definitely find, and I know this is cliche, that, that I, we've heard it a million times before, but I stand by it because this has been my own personal experience, is that there's an incredible honor and dignity and goodness in the way people live in the planet. And anywhere you go, um, despite all of the terrible things that are happening on a daily basis, like you run into people through in the world and they would give you the shirts off their back if, if it was needed and they would be proud to do so. And act, Michael would stand behind that too in all of his travels. And it makes you think that there's kind of this like 
consistent like connecting line of honor and like respect and dignity that runs through all of us as humans, whether whether we're from Germany, whether we're from the United States, whether we're from Yemen or whether we're from Panama. I mean, we're just we're all in this together. And this is the kind of the, the conduit that we we all come together and, and really know that about one another, that there's a goodness in humanity. I, I just got tears in my eyes because my um, my mom who passed four years ago, as you know, mm-hmm. her um, when you'd ask her what was most important in the human experience, she said to pre- to preserve people's dignity at all costs. Ooh, I know. And um, I love that you said honor and dignity in the way people live. I think that's so important. It's, it's just so critical. It's so important. I know I was just watching this amazing um, this video um, about Davos going on right now in Davos or what happened last week. And one of the women there said, you know, we the jobs that even though the economy is going well, but the jobs are not dignified for women and men who are working in factories. And we there has to be a way to make bring more dignity in all jobs. So it's it's not about the money. It's about the, the personal dignity when you're working and the pride. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So wait, yeah. just a side note question. Where do you source your news? Where do I source my news? Um, we watch, you know, over here we get European. I mean, we watch CNN. Hello. I yeah. mean, I, we, put the, we put it on. I, I do Christiane Amanpour. Like, you know, she's my, oh, love my, her. She's my go-to lady. I mean, I'm like her stalker on Instagram. I mean, she is <laughs> just, she's just the most incredible. I love her so I agree. much. I don't think we don't get it over there, do we? Oh, um, Christiane Amanpour here? No. Yeah, do, I, yeah. She, yeah. I don't know. I don't have regular Sometimes. cable anymore, but I love her. I, I could just, I cannot get enough yeah. of her. She's incredible, um, and she has a, her. You can actually listen to the podcast of the show the night before um, on the CNN oh, podcast. Oh, I didn't it, know that. I, yeah, it's just a wealth of information. Um, and we listen to the BB, you know, the BBC. Yeah, um, yep. And then, of course, I. This is always fun for me to, tr- you know, my my German. I'm fluent, but you know, reading the German newspapers always incredibly enlightening because. The, the tone um, of German re- journalists and also politicians here is so much more neutral and respectful than in the States. We're just used to like this, you know, back and forth and tearing people down and, you know, just talking about what they're wearing and everything. And here, yeah. I mean, that, would, that would never, ever, ever, ever come up. It's just Angela Merkel, nobody even knows what her husband looks like. So um, this kind of neutral, you know, just talking about the issues and the policy without having this you know, complete bias um, yeah. is very, like, very refreshing. Like an NPR almost, if you could liken yeah. it to something here, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the second question is, um, what has made you feel the most wonderful in all the experiences over the course of your journey? Well, I would have to say something as simple as my daughter, like the f- simple laugh between like oh. the sense of humor that this little person has. and the the simplicity of children and having a child in your life um that you really you really don't need to like travel um to all countries in the world to really find out what is wonderful or you don't really even need to look outside yourself or your home to find what is wonderful and i was just thinking it was so funny we were playing hide and seek yesterday and she she goes in, like her hiding place is like under the coffee table where like her whole body's sticking out from it like she thinks that's a good idea <laughs> She's like, I'm ready, like an ostrich. And I'm like, oh, I'll send you the photo. It's so funny. I'm like, okay, this is either the best game of hide and seek or the worst game of hide and seek, like ever on the planet. Like, no. <laughs> and she hey, only man. hides in one place. <laughs> it's simplicity. If she can't see you, you can't see her. 
that's exactly what it is. I was dying. <laughs> it was so hilarious. But really, it just made me think like, you know, plenty of all of what is wonderful is right with you, right in front of your space, right in your home, right in your local community. And that's really where like the conversations and real change happens anyway, right? Like just what's right outside your front door. Absolutely. And it starts with a laugh. Oh, oh, I love that. I know. So funny. (laughs) And the last question for you is where do you find the most wisdom? Like where do you seek wisdom? Well, this is what I was thinking about because good, wise, and wonderful. And what is, what, what is wisdom? And as a woman, um, I was thinking about, wow, look at the inherent wisdom of our bodies, of our own bodies, especially being a female. Like as you and I have been talking this last hour, I've been feeling a little Manny Pacquiao boxer, like inside of me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> Cause pregnant, you're pregnant again. <laughs> yeah. Six months. And this little dude is in there like kicking up a storm and, you know, what, what about the wisdom of our bodies? Like something we don't even have to think about, but the fact we can, you know, after 300,000 years of evolution, we are inherently, you know, procreating and growing little human bodies inside of our own bodies. Like what is more, what is more wise than that? Um, And really it's just, it just astounds me and kind of humbles me every time to be like, you know, you don't really have to do much, just be, and, and kind of will take care of itself. Ah. I love it. Samantha, you are pure goodness. Um, I always enjoy hearing your stories. I always enjoy hearing what you have to say. Um, You are so wise and so humble and fantastic. And I'm really grateful that you chose to sit down with us today um, and tell us your story. And um, I will strongly encourage everybody to go to Samantha's blog, samanthamusic.com, right? That's the... Yeah, yeah. That's the landing pad. Um, Mm -hmm. There's some incredible stories on there about the journey that she and Michael and Sia have been on. Um, And you can learn a lot about the world and a lot about um, bravery and kindness um, and humility from that, from that place. So thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us today. I just adore you. I love you. And um, I'm looking forward to doing this again after you have Manny Pacquiao uh, (laughs) and do the other around the world trip. Yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. Michael's like already has it in his little mind, like where he wants to go. And we're going back and forth with some ideas. I'm like, okay. I look so forward to that. I will be your number one fan. Oh, thank you so much. What a joy.